This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Okay, everyone, Parshki Sisa 5783, Parak Lamin Gimel, Pasuk Zion. Pasuk says, Moshe took the Ohel. He planted it, he placed it outside of the camp itself, far away from the camp itself. And he called it the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. Anybody who searched for a Kaddish Baruch who wanted to deal with that Kaddish Baruch he went out to the Ohel Moed, that was outside the camp itself. So Rashi says that after the sin of the Egel Azov, after the sin of the golden calf, he moved his tent outside the camp, claiming that B'nai Israel were excommunicated by the Rav, by HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, and therefore excommunicated from the Talmud, meaning from Moshe Rabbeinu himself as well. The Abarbanel explains that this is done to cause Bnei Yisrael to feel bad about what they had done. Obviously, they realized that they made a big mistake, but now they should realize it even further. They have to know this was not the right thing to do. Now they knew the Shekhinah was not going to be with them just until they worked on themselves and did Shuva, because Moshe Rabbeinu moved out of the camp. Moshe Rabbeinu couldn't be there, so for sure HaKadosh Baruch Hu wasn't going to be there. Rashi continues that his tent was then placed 2,000 Amos away from the camp, although normally Nidoi is only four Amos away. You're supposed to be four Amos away from that person, right? Nonetheless, this was just within the tomb, a little further away, so that anyone who wanted to come to do so, who wanted to walk to him on Shabbos, could still do so. They would be within 2,000 Amos around there. He called his tent the Ohel Moed, right? Because this is going to be a meeting place for anybody who wanted to hear Torah and to be able to learn with Moshe Rabbeinu. Those that came were called Mevakshe Hashem, says Rashi, because they wanted to hear from Moshe. It was like hearing from the Shechina itself. Even the Malachim themselves knew that the Shechina could be found in the tent of Moshe Rabbeinu, and they said, where is Moshe Rabbeinu? Where is the Shechina? The Shechina is with Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's the idea behind it. The Rashbam says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu no longer wished to speak with Moshe Rabbeinu within Machin Yisrael. That's why he had to leave. That's the idea behind it. The Abarbanel says, it sounds like he lost the ability to have Nevua within the confines of the camp, and therefore he went to go get it back. And that's what he did. He went out of the camp in order to get it back. That's where the Abarbanel puts it, and that's the Rashbam, basically. The Rokeach says this was giving Bnei Yisrael space. He wanted to give them space a little bit so they wouldn't be confronted with the Shechina before they had done Shuvah completely. Because obviously being together with the Shechina would make it worse for them. This is be able to say it's a little bit off. This sounds a little petty. I'm not sure I totally understand that completely. But regardless, there's a Bechor Shor over here that says this happens because Moshe Rabbeinu was upset that they tried making another leader while he was gone. So he left. And he said, well, if you don't want me, then I'm going to go. I'm, I'm not sure I understand that completely. I don't think that's that. But the Rokeach goes on and says their immediate tikkun was taking off their crowns. And that's what I mentioned, is that they took off the crowns that they got, which they had did in the previous pasuk. Until everything settled down a bit, Moshe Rabbeinu left them for their own safety, so they wouldn't die. But the Bechor Shor throws me off a little bit. The Abarbanel says he did this to test if they would, if he would lose his nevuah for good, if it was gone, and he was never going to get it back for, for forever, knowing that the people were being punished for what they did, and he was their leader. He wasn't sure if his punishment would be as Severe as theirs. So to test that, he went farther away to go see, is he going to get Nebu or not? And when he saw he did get Nebu, he realized the Bene Yisrael were going to be punished, but he himself were not, was not going to be punished that way. He was going to be fine. He just went to go down for the nation itself. Now, there's a very strange Gemara in Sanhedrin Daf Kufiyod that could be the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu changed his place and moved his tent outside the camp. In Tehillim, Par Kufvav, it says, Vayikanu Lemoshe Bamachna. They were jealous of Moshe Rabbeinu in the camp itself. Because I'll say, they suspected Chas Vishal and Moshe Rabbeinu being together with their wives, completely baseless, right, in order to shame him and embarrass him. The Torah Tamima says, due to this accusation, 
Moshe moved away from everyone so he wouldn't be around the women. Nobody can make this claim anymore. He knew that even if women would come to hear his Torah, they wouldn't come alone since it was too far away. They'd come in pairs. There would always be a crowd and therefore no one could suspect him of doing anything. And that's the reason why they moved outside. However, it's unlikely this happened after the Ego Azov, right? When they all felt contrite and they felt terrible about what they had done, that they immediately started suspecting Moshe. But even though it says, they looked after Moshe, is in this Parsha. Still, it seems strange that it happened right then. It's likely that it was after Korach and his crew came around many years, many months later. But regardless, either way, that's what the Torah Mima says. Now, Vayatav Aram says something similar, but the opposite. Same idea, but the exact opposite way. There were many people among Klai Yisrael that were not Zohar to have children yet. Right? So they may have known or heard of the concept of the Nix of Inizra Zara. That if a person is suspecting of being a Sota and she's innocent and nothing happened, then in the end, she's going to be able to have children if she is suspected of being together with somebody. She's secluded with that person she's, she's suspected of being together with, right? And they end up being innocent. They go to Basin Agadol, she drinks the soda water, and she didn't do anything. Then Vinixa, she'll be cleansed, Vinizrazar, and through the shame that is erased inside the water that she drinks, the Mimarim Hamarim, right? She's going to be able to come, to, she's going to be able to have a child. Now, Hannah did this, or wanted to do this, saying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if you don't give me a child through natural means, then I'll use your Torah to be able to give me this child. I'm willing to do whatever I need to do in order to have this child. In the end, she obviously didn't do it. When these men saw the Moshe Rabbeinu and moved his tent outside of the camp, they immediately were mekane their wives. They did kinoi. They said, don't be together with Moshe Rabbeinu. That's what they said to them. So that if they then would somehow accidentally have yichud with Moshe Rabbeinu, with Edim, chashom, nothing would ever happen. But the men could then say there was kinoi, vestira, bring them to drink the soda water drink. Right, and when she's innocent, she'll end up having a child. That's the idea. They knew that Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't do anything. There's no way they would be Makanis, somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu, that they would do, he would do anything with their wives. That would never ever happen. But that's the idea behind it. There was Zilcha, and that was their plan over there. It never came to be. Yoshua never moved from within the tent, right? So there was never a time where there would have been Yichud together with any of these women because Yoshua was mamish right there with them the entire time. The Panam Yafos gives other, two other reasons why the Amiratim were thinking this way. If you look at the Panam Yafos, flaw, beautiful answers right over there, both amazing. The Shach says he still called in Oal Moed, a place for meeting, so that people shouldn't think that he had to, st- they had to stay away and leave him alone. This wasn't a place for him to just seclude himself and to be off on his own, like Pinchas did later on in life. No, he wanted them to join him. Those were were worthy of joining him. This is an opportunity for them to get scarpsios, for them to walk a little bit further out, for them to walk, to be able to be with them. That's how the shock puts it. Targum Minnesota says it's an area created for learning and davening. That's what it was made for, like Rashi says. Anyone who wanted to do tshuva had the ability to go there, admit their sins, and daven to be saved. That's what it was there for. That's the entire area of the Walmoid. The Rokat says it wasn't Moshe's tent for his family. His family stayed back in Shevet Levi. They didn't come with him. His wife and children did not join him in the tent itself, but this is just for learning, davening, and that's that. It was a place to go. Someone lost something, right? And he wanted know where it was, like Shaul with the donkeys, and he went to Shmuel and Avi. That's where you went to Moshe, and you asked him, what should I do over here? The Zayim Torah says, we know that the Avos all made yeshivas. They learned whatever Torah they were given at the time. This was called an Ohel, and that's the Ohels that they made all over, the places that made, even by Yitzchak, I mean, they called it the Be'eros, the Be'er, that he made over there, that he was drawing water for the people to be able to learn. That's why there's, but that's why, that's something people understood. That's why it's called the, with a hay over here. It's Ha'ohel. It's something they knew about before. It's not the first time 
time they'd ever heard of something like that, that he took that ohel and moved it outside the tent itself. So the wording over here is, Harkin Yimunachin, he took it, Moshe Yikach as ha-ohel. That's the ohel that everybody knew about before, that learning yeshiva, that's the idea behind it. However, the shach, the Yom Lois, says there's another connotation of the word ohel and there's another thing that's signed out from over here. Before they sinned, before people sinned, right, his tent was called an ohel stam. It was just called an Ohel. This meant that it would last forever. There was no reason for him to ever die. He was supposed to be there forever because he was the leader of the people and the people were awesome and everything was all good by them. They just got Mount They weren't supposed to die. And Ohel is something that moves with the wind. It could be placed here. It could be placed there. It could be placed all over the place. Depending on where you want to go, it just picks up and moves. It's not something that really can be destroyed because that's what it's made for. It's made to move from one place to the other. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu's life would have been and B'nai Yisrael would have been. Now the eagle happened. It's called an Ohel Moed. Moed means a that amount of time. It's not going to last forever. This may explain a Pasuk in Yeshaya, says the Shach, where he says that Sion will be called a Kiryas Mo, I, I believe this is Miyam is not the Shach, Kiryas Moadenu. It will be a city for our meeting. It will be for a set amount of time. And that's what Yeshaya was trying to tell them because there will be a Chorban of Chorban Bayes Rishon, Chorban Bayes Sheni. There's going to be a plan. Only in the future will Yushalayim be known as a Neve Sha'anan, a place that's going to be tranquil and peaceful, an Ohel Bal Yitzain that won't be gone, it will last forever. And that's the idea of what Yeshai was trying to say over there. The Ibn Ezra says something else over here. He says, some say this is referring to the actual oil of the Mishkan. That he took the oil of the Mishkan, he brought it out, he moved it outside the camp until it was finished. Because it wasn't finished yet. They started after the day after Yom Kippur. It wasn't finished until technically Hanukkah, but really until Rosh Chodesh Nisan. So he brought it outside. Perhaps it was this was even where it was placed from Rosh Chodesh Nisan up until the Degolim were set up a month and a half later. It didn't have to be in the middle of the camp because they didn't necessarily have Degolim yet, yet in the camp. There was no Machina and then all the different people in the right places. They didn't have that yet, not until much later on, where we mentioned in Parshas Bamidbar, Parshas Naso, that's when they got into Degolim. So maybe that's where it was up until that point. That's why it says Ha-Ohel with the hey, because we're talking about the actual Ohel. We're talking about the actual Ohel We're talking about the actual Mishkan. Two or more questions, this shot. He wonders, if the Ibn Ezra is right, why Moshe would have had to call the Ohel if it was already named the Ohel and already known as such. Why would he have to call it that at that point? It was already known as that. Aside from that, we know the Ohel and the Mishkan was only built after after the sin of the Egelozov, not before, and it was done to be machapa for their sin. So we know that there's no order to the psukim. This seems to be taking a risk and putting these psukim over here, which, yes, it's after Truma Tetzava, but it's before they built it, and you're putting it over here in the middle of nowhere as if the oil is already made. It's a very strange thing to say. But that's what Tzor Moriyas and the Ben Ezra, the Ben Ezra has his reasons. We could explain it a little bit, but it's not for right now. The Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, even though the Pulsar says, Kol Mevakesh Hashem, anybody who was searching for a Kaddish Baruch who went out to the oil, it really means Kol Mevakesh Moshe. Listen to this, Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Moshe was known by the Shem HaMiyuchad, by Hashem's name. Like Yaakov was known as El in Lamed Gemochaf, or Shem, when the Pastor says, Vatelech Lidrosh as Hashem. Right, that was Rivka. Rivka went to go search HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and no, but she went to Shem. Shem was known as Hashem's name. Yaakov was known as Hashem's name. And Moshe Rabbeinu was known as Hashem's name. The truth is, we see this by Mashiach as well. Yirmi and Chav Gimovav, as well as Yerushalayim. Yechazko, Melchaz, Lamedal, even Yerushalayim is known by Akadosh Baruch Hu's name. This is because the Shliach is sometimes called by the name of the Shaleach, the one who sends the messenger. As we see Malachim sometimes called by the name of Hashem. The Malach that called out to Avram Vinu is known by the name of Akadosh Baruch Hu. Ki at, ani, ani, uh, sorry, I forgot the wording. Ani Adati. 
I forgot the wording, but there's obviously in for first person the Malach is saying, "I now I know lo ki bin Right now I know that you haven't withheld from me. The Malach is talking from Hakadosh Baruch Hu's point of view, so to speak. The, all over Tanakh we have Malachim talking as if Hashem is speaking in the Nevi'im. When it's really through Malachim themselves, Morinavuchim talks about this in Chelagimel the entire time. That's the idea of what it was supposed to be. It's really only angels, right? For example, there is Hashem asking Avram Avinu why sorry Minu sorry Minu left, but that was a Malach. We have Hashem destroying Sodom, but it was really Gavriel. With the Malachim, they were doing it. Mashchis and was their problem that they attributed to themselves, but it really was the Malachim they were doing it. B'Shem Hashem. This obviously needs to be understood properly because this is a basic tenet of Christianity that a human being can be part of God. But I think that's part of this. We only know it by Moshe Rabbeinu, by Yaakov Avinu, by Mashiach, obviously, as well as by Shame. People that we would never suspect of being HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. That's ridiculous. Not much a ridiculous notion to be able to say such a thing. So therefore, they are known by a Kaddish Baruch Hu's name because they represent what a Kaddish Baruch Hu stands for in this world. That's not an easy concept, and I, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not poo-pooing the fact that this is a strange Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, but the idea behind it is not that. There is a huge limud that comes from this, a massive limud. Yushalmi Erevan Perkei says, because it says, Kol Mevakesh Hashem, and not Kol Mevakesh Moshe, those who search for Hashem and not for Moshe, we learn that someone who greets the Rebbe and goes to see him as if they're greeting the Shechina itself. Mayan Torah says this explains a Mimer of the Zohar which says, Yera Hashem. Every male is to go greet the master of Kaddish Baruch Who is the master of Hashem? Roshim Bayechai says, right? It's referring to me. Roshim Bayechai. <laughs> to go greet. Yera Ez Hashem. You're supposed to greet Hashem. But Roshim Bayechai is referring to himself? What does that mean? And the idea is, just like this, just like there was a mitzvah to do aliyah l'regel in the times of the base of Mikdash, there's another mitzvah to greet one's Rebbe over the holiday. To go greet one's Rebbe, to be makabal p'nei rabbo on the regal itself. And doing so is if you're greeting the Shekhinah Kabiyahu. That's why the Zohar mentions once you greet Rebbe Shimon is if, since the Rebbe is considered, right, obviously the author of the Zohar, the Rebbe is considered like HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that way. Chas Shalom to Satan. Any other way more than this, there's a party associate that is huge on this subject, but not for right now, right? There's obviously a lot to this. Did Moshe Rabbeinu ever come back? Did he ever bring his tent back? Because we don't see Moshe Rabbeinu actually going into Machin Levia. We assume that it happened. Did he actually bring it back or not? So Rashi writes later on in Puzzle Yidalov that this tent remained outside the camp from Yom Kippur until the day that the Mishkan was set up, right, on the first of Nisan. At that point, the Midrash says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe Rabbeinu to move himself back so the people won't think that he, meaning God, or Moshe Rabbeinu, were still angry with them, right? That's the idea. Aside from that, once the Mishkan was set up, HaKadosh Baruch Hu only spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu from between the Kruvim, which means he had to be by the Mishkan. He couldn't be outside the tent the entire time. He must have been right there. So it's likely that he moved back into the camp on Rosh Kodesh Nisan when the Mishkan was set up. The Ibn Ezra and the Chizkini also say this happened after Moshe had brought down the second Luchos, right, that was on Yom Kippur. And it was done because he knew he would have constant visions with the Shechina and would thus need privacy. So he did go out in order to get privacy. The Bnei had already begun building the Mishkan at this time. And maybe out of order, there's no aim... aim um, so therefore it wasn't that way and that's that that's part of the Ebenezer that we mentioned before the Ramban says he doesn't understand that Ebenezer whatsoever why would this be mentioned here in the middle of the partial when Moshe Rabbeinu didn't return with the second Luchos until much later on yes but there's no reason to say if there's another quite obvious shot over here it seems that Moshe did this because he was angry at them as Rashi said right if the master is angry then for sure the Talmud is angry and they were excommunicated but they were all forgiven on Yom Kippur because Moshe Rabbeinu Davin for them for 40 days and 40 nights. Rashi said himself, says later on, why would he have only, according to Ibn Ezra, why would he have only moved his tent away from them after Yom Kippur, after they were already forgiven? 
That doesn't make any sense. Why would he have done this? Instead, it seems the most likely time that he moved his tent out was on the 18th of Tammuz. He came back on Shivas of Tammuz. That's when he saw the eagle itself and he ground it up into little gold pieces and he fed it to the people and that's that. On the 18th of Tammuz, he then went back to the mountain. He davened for the people as quickly as he could, had his first discussion with Hashem about Shuvah itself, culminating in a plague on the 18th of Tammuz that wiped out thousands of people. He then commanded Bnei Yisrael to take off their crowns. That's when he moved the tent outside of the camp on that very day, on the 18th of Tammuz itself, knowing the Shekhinah wouldn't speak to him inside the camp itself. It seems like he then remained there to daven for the people for the next 40 days and 40 nights. And that was from Yudchaz Tammuz all the way to Rosh Chodesh Elul. That's 40 days altogether. And then from Rosh Chodesh Elul, he came down one more time. He got the stuff that he needed to make the second Luchos and was up there from Rosh Chodesh Elul up until Yom Kippur itself. Maybe some people came to join him to daven during that time, although they weren't actually with him. While he was speaking with Hashem, the last 40 days, he certainly went up to Harsin and he certainly had the luchos and that's that. Now, Pirkei to Rebbe Eliezer, who's actually quoted by the Ramban himself, says the same idea in Perak Manvav with a little difference, that he spent 40 days among the people from Yudchaz Tammuz until Rosh Chodesh Elul, he did not go up onto the mountain itself. That's when he crushed the eagle into pieces over those 40 days. He fed it to the people and told everyone where to go and where they should be on Rosh Chodesh Elul. He's told to climb the mountain, right, for the second time, the first time during the first 40 days. And this time he was told to climb on carve out the second Luchos. That is exactly what he did with a chauffeur blasting announcing that Moshe Rabbeinu was going up and he was going to leave them 40 days and they shouldn't mess up like they did the last time. Thus, we have a minig to blow the chauffeur on Rosh Chodesh Elul because that's when they blew the chauffeur on Moshe Rabbeinu went up on Rosh Chodesh Elul. That's the idea. It's crazy, right? Because you thought it was going to lead us up to Rosh Hashanah. Says the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer is because of this. The Ramban has a few questions on this Pirkei Rebbe Lezer. <coughs> That it seems that Moshe Rabbeinu was up there for 80 days without eating or drinking, not just 40, based on different psukim and dvarim, where it says it twice. Nonetheless, the basic idea is the same, that he moved his tent on the 18th of Tammuz, right, not after Yom Kippur itself, not like the Ibn Ezra says. So the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer and the Rabban are both agreeing that the Ibn Ezra does not make any sense in their minds in what he says. Now, Ksav Akabala quotes Tanit Abel Yahu in Perik Bey's Halacha Dalid, that says the exact same thing as the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer, that during those 40 days, he actually went to Harsinai and Daven for Bnei Yisrael, every single morning then came down and was with the people during those 40 days and then went up for 40 days straight from Rosh Chodesh Elul, etc. That's what he says over here. It might be against the Ramban, but it sort of does answer all the questions that the Ramban asks on Pirkei de Revelezer. So maybe that's the idea behind it. The Balotrim says we learn from this that one should ex- exile himself in order to learn Torah properly. And then in order to learn Torah properly, you need to be out of your comfort zone. You can't just have all your comforts at home and expect to be able to learn properly. It's very difficult to learn at home because of all the distractions that there are there. The hint of this, says Zosnaim Torah, is that they had to move around now to learn Torah properly. After the Luchos were broken, a Zeru was made in all the Klai saw The one had to learn Torah mitoichat chak. Out of pressure, so to speak. Out of pain. Out of shibut. Out of tiltulim. That's the idea. We have a movable Torah. Where we have Golis Bavel and it allowed us to have Torah. We have Golis into Europe and we got the Balitosis out of it. We have Golis into America and we have the Yeshiva system that was made up. Baruch Hashem and Eretz Yisrael as well. The Shlach Kaddish used to say, Tsei Ulamad. When you go out in order to learn Torah, then you'll be able to learn properly. You'll be able to hopper for all the sins of Klai Yisrael. Say Ulamad. We're coming up to Pesach soon. So that's that. Tam Vidas says from the Belzer Rebbe, this is Rav Shnurmbach, says from the Belzer Rebbe of Aaron Rokeach, that the highest level of tshuva that was to give oneself over to Torah learning completely. That's the idea behind it. That would be mechaper, similar to the Seira Mishvalech, like sacrificing oneself, so to speak, on the Mizbech, outside of the Mizbech, outside, that you leave the camp 
in order to be machaper from an Esau. That's the idea behind it, says Rav Kech. The Ayel Shachar, Rav Steinman says, he wonders why it would be mutter to walk outside of the Ananiya Kavod and put yourself in a Sakana where there are snakes and scorpions and heat, heat stroke, in order to go visit Moshe Rabbeinu, right, where he was, in a desolate desert area with Nechashem and Akrabim. Why was that allowed? Why would you be able to leave protection? There were still enemies out there. What were they thinking? Even if there were shluchei mitzvah, to visit Moshe Rabbeinu and to learn Torah, wouldn't that be considered shchir hazeka? You're in the middle of a desert. That's not shchir hazeka. So he says, maybe it was still within the clouds, and Moshe Rabbeinu was still within the clouds, even though he was less than 2,000 almost away. Or maybe just the opposite. You are required to put yourself in some danger in order to go learn. Don't think it's going to be easy. Sometimes you may have to put yourself in some type of danger in order to make sure that you're learning properly. And that's part of the idea of going to learn Torah properly. Dazakenim in the Panech Ras says the word Ohel does not mean a tent at all. But rather it comes from the word Ora, from the word light. He took the light of the 1.2 million crowns that Bnei Yisrael gave him, the Nasev and Ishmael crowns of 600,000 people, so 1.2 million crowns. He took them off themselves, and that's what caused his face to shine. Thus, Vayikach Moshe as the oil is he took the aura, the ohel, the aura, from Bnei Yisrael, Vayisnatzel Bnei Yisrael, and that's why it says Vayikach as opposed to Nata, right? It's Vayikach, which is the better word when referring to a tent, you usually refer to a Nata. It's Vayikach, he took it, he grabbed it for himself. I have no idea how to read the rest of the Pasuk according to these Rishonim, but nonetheless, that's what those Rishonim say. The Shach says, this is one of the reasons on Shabbos why we say Yismach Moshe b'matanas chalko, that Moshe Rabbeinu was happy with the matana of his own chilek. At first, when they received the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu received a thousand oros from Adam Rishon, from Shays, from Enosh, represented by a large Aleph. After the sin, he lost those a thousand oros, and all he had was the Aleph Zira, the small olive of Vayikra. Only on Shabbos those Oros returned, the light returned, and Moshe Rabbeinu was ecstatic to be able to get them, and then gave the crown back to Bnei Yisrael. He was able to give them something, and he didn't take them for himself, and that's the Nishami Yisrael that Bnei Yisrael got, that they got the or they got that Ohel, right, that he was able to take for himself. Perhaps that refers to certain different Torah that he gave them on Shabbos. Maybe he did something else that we don't know exactly that happened on Shabbos, but that's Yismach Moshe Matnas I'm going to end with one story. Elena L'Shabach, Rav Yitzhak Zilberstein, brings a famous story of Yeshaya Bradki. Son-in-law of Rabbi Saul Shklov, the famed Talmud of the Vilna Gom. He's making his way to Eretzol when a sudden storm came up, right? It came upon the boat and literally the boat split in half. So he landed on some type of a board, whatever it was, but the board soon went under. And then he had his two children, young son and young daughter that were with him. And he began to swim to shore knowing that he didn't know where he was. He had no idea how long it was going to be until he got to shore, right? So after a few hours, Rabbi Rocky couldn't, couldn't handle it anymore. And he knew he could not hold both of his children. Terrible, terrible situation I, that nobody should ever be in. So he had to let go of one. He has a son and a daughter. And in halacha, one is required to save a son before a daughter. You could argue that point. That's something that could be brought up in halacha. But Rabadki held that he had to save his son over his daughter. So he said to his daughter, he began to let go of her. And she held on desperately. And he said, like, you have to let go. I need you to let go. I can't hold on to you anymore. And she started crying. She's like, Abba, Abba, I have no other Abba. What are you doing to me? Why are you letting go of me? And he couldn't do it. But somehow he could. He found the strength and he just kept swimming. And somehow, some way, he and his son and his daughter were able to make it to shore. Exhausted, he fainted on the spot. When he woke up, he's told his daughter, you have to remember what you just said. You do have a father, and it's not me. It's a Kaddish Baruch Hu. 
You have a father in Shemayim. And if you cry out with that type of a cry, and you have to call out and you say, the same way you called out to me, Abba, Abba, I have no other Abba. I have no one else to go to. He won't be able to say no to you. He will never be able to say no to you. And that, I think, is part of this idea of what it means. Kol mevakesh Hashem. Anybody who's mevakesh Hashem, if you're truly mevakesh Hashem and you search for it, you'll go anywhere, right? You'll do anything for it. You'll do anything that you can because we truly only have one father and that father is up in Shemayim. Have a good Shabbos, everybody.